Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Saturday, uh, November 25th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again uh, to, no- to another edition of this Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the call by the South African Foreign Minister, Dr. Naledi Pandora, uh, for Israel to be officially declared an apartheid state. 39 uh, Palestinian uh, political prisoners have been released from Israeli prisons. We'll have details on that as well. There have been statements from uh, the recently freed detainees to uh, the media uh, in the region. And tens of thousands of people are reportedly heading back to northern Gaza after the imposition of a four-day truce. In the second and third hours, we review uh, the assassination of United States President John F. Kennedy, 60 years ago, and uh, the critiques of the government-controlled investigations into his murder uh, during uh, the aftermath of the assassination, which took place on November 22nd of 1963. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. So everybody, please uh, stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with, of course, our Um Kaltum Orchestra's film festival. Uh, let's listen in. Thank you. 
السماء لوف هيمة هيمة حالك تتمنى تسعد يوم 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 برضاك
Yeah. 
I'm not gonna 
Welcome back, and that was uh, the Egyptian classical music uh, of Um Kaltum and her orchestra. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast for Saturday, uh, November 25th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. Our lead story, uh, and these are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire. Our lead story uh, deals with the situation involving South Africa and the occupied uh, Palestinian territories. The South African government intends to petition the International Criminal Court and the International Court of Justice to declare Israel an apartheid state. 
according to Dr. Naliti Pandora, the Minister of International Relations and Cooperation, South Africa and Palestine were currently working on formulating political strategies towards taking up the Palestinian cause to the International Criminal Court and the International Court of Justice to, quote, declare Israel as an apartheid state, end quote. Quote, South Africa will directly petition the International Criminal International Court of Justice to give advisory opinion on the legal consequences arising from the ongoing violation by Israel of the right of the Palestinian people to self-determination from its prolonged occupation, settlement, and annexation of the Palestinians' territory occupied since 1967, unquote, said Pandor in reply to a parliamentary question from a fellow member of parliament on Monday. Pandora also said South Africa will work towards Palestine being granted membership at the United Nations. On the global level, South Africa supports Palestinian efforts for membership of the United Nations and the creation of positive, credible, and lasting international mechanisms to address the Palestinian cause based on international law, Pandora explained. On Tuesday, the South African parliament voted overwhelmingly in support of a motion to close down the Israeli embassy in Pretoria, as well as cut all diplomatic ties with Tel Aviv. In other news, freed uh, Palestinian prisoners expressed their gratitude for the resistance after they were released uh, from Israeli occupation prisons in a prisoner swap deal. The Al-Qasim brigades and the Palestinian resistance factions in Gaza have freed 39 uh, women and underage male prisoners from Israeli occupation prisons as part of the first batch of the truce agreement and the prisoner exchange deal, which began today and will continue for four days. A four-day humanitarian truce went into effect on yesterday, Friday, after a deal was reached between the Israeli occupation and Hamas on the matter following an Israeli aggression that has persisted for 47 consecutive days, leaving tens of thousands of people injured, uh, over 14,000, nearly 15,000 officially reported killed, and millions, over 1 million uh, displaced. Earlier, uh, Israeli media outlets uh, reported that the first batch of Israeli captives who were held by the Palestinian resistance crossed the Rafah crossing into Egypt after being received earlier by the Red Cross at the Khan Yunus Hospital in the Gaza Strip which transferred them to Palestinian-Egyptian borders. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, Israeli media reports uh, that Hamas is still in control of Gaza 49 days, now 50 days into the aggression on the Strip, uh, adding uh, that uh, the ceasefire was serving the resistance. Anyone who mourned Hamas simply had to see this day. After 49 days of fighting, Hamas has proven uh, that it remains strong and in control of Gaza, Israeli media said yesterday. Al-Qasim Brigade succeeded in imposing a ceasefire in the south and north of the Gaza Strip, Israeli media said, indicating that Hamas's armed wing knew how and when to bring the detainees to the Khan Yunus Hospital. Hamas did not kneel in the face of the Israeli occupation forces onslaught. Israeli media said 
This reality is still very far-fetched, unfortunately. All Israeli detainees in Gaza were neglected by the Israeli government, Channel 12 said, highlighting that they were betrayed and they were uh, threatened another betrayal if not everything possible is done in order to release the remaining of the captives. Uh, uh, If Hamas succeeds in stopping the fighting from continuing, then it has officially emerged victorious, Israeli Reserve General Israel Ziv declared. Israeli media reported earlier in the day that tens of thousands of Palestinians have since the morning, the time when the ceasefire deal went into effect, returning to the northern Gaza Strip uh, from the south. And uh, finally, uh, in regard uh, to uh, the situation in the region, several Jordanian cities uh, witnessed massive pro-Palestine rallies hailing the resistance and its acts against the Israeli occupation in support of the Palestinian people in Gaza. Jordanians took part in massive pro-Palestine marches in Amman and various parts of the country yesterday. Thousands participated in a central march in the capital, Amman carrying banners that read, Resistance is our choice. Also, earlier today, uh, hundreds of thousands also demonstrated uh, in London, England, uh, in support of a permanent ceasefire and also in support of the freedom and liberation of the Palestinian people. Uh, This has been an ongoing occurrence in England. Hundreds of thousands uh, have come into the streets on a weekly basis against uh, its own government's position uh, supporting the genocide against the Palestinian people in Gaza and throughout the occupied Palestinian territories. With that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. I'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day. Just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, November 25th, uh, 2023, all you need to do is log on to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be right back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
Welcome back, and uh, that was Barbara Mason uh, with the track entitled Oh, How It Hurts. And this is the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit on this Saturday afternoon, November 25th, uh, 2023. And right now we want to look back uh, 60 years uh, on the assassination of the 35th president of the United States, John F. Kennedy. And, of course, uh, a political event, a political assassination, which occurred on November 22nd of 1963 in Dallas, Texas, has been uh, subject to controversial interpretations uh, for the last six decades. Immediately after the assassination, uh, there was an effort to frame uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, a 24-year-old former Marine, and of course he was assassinated uh, less than 48 hours after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Of course, uh, at that point, uh, the government wanted to declare the case as being closed, that the person who plotted and carried out the assassination was now dead as a result of assassin's bullet uh, from Jack Ruby, a uh, club owner uh, in Dallas, Texas. But many people did not accept uh, that uh, viewpoint. Uh, The successor uh, to John F. Kennedy, uh, President Lyndon Baines Johnson, who was his vice president at the time of the assassination, commissioned uh, several high-ranking individuals in the United States at the time, all uh, men, all Caucasian men. They became known as the Warren Commission uh, because the commission was headed by Chief Justice Earl Warren of the United States Supreme Court. And, of course, um, from the beginning, many people questioned uh, the lone gunman theory. Later, of course, uh, many articles and books uh, were published. We're going to listen to an interview from one of the leading researchers uh, in deconstructing the Warren Commission and the official explanation uh, surrounding the assassination of John F. Kennedy, particularly the question of whether or not it was a conspiracy and whether or not more than one person was involved and what level was the conspiracy carried out and with whose knowledge. Now, this is an interview uh, from 1967 uh, from Sylvia Meager. Uh, She was a research analyst at the United Nations World Health Organization. After the assassination, she took a strong interest uh, in uh, the killing of John F. Kennedy and read uh, the 26 volumes of the hearing and exhibit of the Warren Commission, which were published uh, the following year in 1964. She said, and I quote, it was appalling to find how many of the commission's statements were unsupportable or even completely contradicted uh, by the testimony and or exhibits. I began to list what is now a long list of deliberate misrepresentations, omissions, distortions, and other defects demonstrating not only extreme bias, incompetence, and carelessness, but irrefutable instances of dishonesty. In 1965, MEGA published subject index to the Warren Report and hearings and exhibits. As MEGA pointed out, studying the entire 26 volumes without a subject index would be tantamount to search for information in Encyclopedia Britannica if the contents were untitled, unalphabetized, and in random sequence. A deep study of the Warren Commission report convinced her that the details, its details, evidence, uh, contradicted 
its general conclusions. MIGA therefore published accessories after the fact. The Warren Commission, the authorities, and the report that was published in 1967. MIGA was unconvinced that Lee Harvey Oswald had been the lone gunman and concluded that the Warren Commission had attempted to cover up details of the real people behind the assassination. MIGA believed that John F. Kennedy had been killed by a group of anti-Castro exiles who, in fact, had been supported and sponsored by the Central Intelligence Agency. Let's listen uh, back on this interview uh, with uh, Sylvia Meager uh, from 1967. This is William O'Connell, and we're talking again about the assassination of President Kennedy and uh, the Warren Commission report. And our guest today is Mrs. Sylvia Marr of New York City. Uh, Mrs. Marr, as some of you may already know, is the author of a number of articles that have appeared uh, recently in The Minority of One, and her principal contribution in the field of scholarly research is a subject index to the Warren Report, uh, which is indeed an index not only of the report itself, but the 26 um, volumes of testimony and exhibits uh, printed uh, by the government printing office. Uh, Mrs. Marr resides in New York City, and she happens to be out here on a, a tour at the present time, and we have prevailed upon her to come to Los Angeles, and if my listeners will forgive me a personal note, I want to say that this is, um, perhaps of all the interviews I've conducted, the one that I've been most looking forward to. So I want to say, and I'm glad to be able to say, finally, uh, welcome, Mrs. Marr, to KPFK. Thank you, Bill. It's very good to be here. Let me begin straight away by asking you what it was that brought you to a serious and scholarly study of the assassination, and also, I think part of that question uh, that follows is, how did the subject index itself come about? Well, in common with many other people in, in this country, I found that the initial story out of Dallas on Friday, the 22nd of November, 1963, was so highly implausible and unconvincing that I began from that day to follow with uh, very great interest all the information that was published um, during the uh, succeeding year, uh, published in the press and in the magazines, uh, seeking some kind of, of rational uh, explanation of these events and of the alleged um, motivation and uh, a commission of this crime and at no point during that time uh, did I find that there was coherence, plausibility, and directness. Uh, in fact, I think it is extraordinary how many revisions continually took place, unabashedly, revisions of the evidence that flowed through the papers, especially uh, the revisions uh, of the autopsy and medical findings, uh, an area of evidence which should not have been subject to so many contradictions and changes. In spite of, of this uh, strong skepticism I felt from the beginning, when the Warren Report was published, I think I was quite prepared if that was a thoroughly 
convincing and straightforward, um, well-supported document, I think I would have accepted it. I would have come to accept that all of these improbabilities, coincidences, um, changes in the presentation of the case by the various authorities, whether the Dallas Police and District Attorney, the FBI, or the Commission itself uh, during the term of its work. I would have accepted all of that um, as unfortunate evidences of certain confusion and non-coordination. Uh, however, the Warren Report, uh, speaking now only of the 888-page document yes. that was published in September 1964, uh, seemed to me um, marked by internal contradictions to some degree, but more particularly marked by an evasiveness of language that troubled me deeply. Uh, there were many passages and many uh, points on which the language of the report was so uh, obfuscatory and lacking in in directness and candor, it seemed to me, that I wondered, and I was I was deeply concerned about the reasons for the uh, writers of the report to have um, gone through these rather exquisite uh, efforts to say certain things in a way that seemed over-cautious, over-contrived, and began to await the publication of the 26 volumes of the hearings and exhibits in the hope that these volumes would throw light upon many of the areas which left me still greatly in doubt and with many misgivings. May I ask, how long was the time lapse between the appearance of the Warren Report itself and uh and the actual issuance of the 26 volumes of testimony and exhibits? It was two months. And I remember my own personal excitement when the crate arrived. It was, uh, I believe, the day before Thanksgiving in 1964. And uh, I plunged into these volumes with uh, truly enormous interest and curiosity and the hope of, again, finding those answers which I had failed to find in the Warren Report itself. Now, I must say that reading these volumes, far from allaying these misgivings that, uh, in common with many other people, I have felt greatly intensified. And I found not only contradictions which indicated uh, carelessness, uh, predisposition of the commission to certain findings, uh, unfair tactics in the examination of witnesses, um, I found, as many other people have pointed out, that there were um, favorable witnesses. Uh, I'm, I'm using the wrong terminology here. There were the uh, witnesses that... Friendly witnesses. Friendly yes. witnesses and hostile witnesses, which in itself is entirely inappropriate to any uh, fact-finding investigation. You should not have friendly nor hostile witnesses. Uh, Aside from these evidences of carelessness and bias, I found absolutely 
uh, unambiguous instances of misrepresentation of fact. Misrepresentation of the facts in the 26 volumes as they were reflected in the one report itself. And these, in a number of instances, were on crucial points of the evidence. Now, in my study of the 26 volumes, which, as, as you know, Bill, I'm sure that uh, you've encountered the same difficulty, uh, it is very difficult to locate material. Uh, I found that what was happening was something that I had seen somewhere in the volumes, which I wanted to find again, uh, caused me to spend some four and five hours at times looking for this. Uh, there was no uh, way to locate it. In many instances, there was absolutely no way to locate it, uh, either by the footnotes in the report or any other method. And so I began to draw up uh, something of an index for my own personal use to save the time that I was losing and scouring the hearings and exhibits. And this uh, was just done on just pieces of paper uh, with notations in pencil and intended it only for my private use in uh, checking out the evidence on any particular point as far as it could be checked out. As I was engaged on this work, and I, I think one or two people with whom I was in contact uh, at that time um, knew that I was working on this index for myself, um, they impressed upon me the fact that all of the researchers would have equal need for such an index. They would all yes. be able to save time. And uh, it was suggested to me by Vince Philandria of Philadelphia that it would be of such great help to all the researchers to have such an index. He urged me to drop all my other um, studies in the report and hearings and exhibits as of that time and to concentrate on the subject index and to have it published and distributed, uh, an idea which I must admit had not occurred to me. And I, I felt that he was probably quite correct and that this would be a service uh, to everybody who was taking interest in the evidence, and so I, I did uh, give that priority. I, I dropped what I had started to do, which was writing up some of the discrepancies, some of the uh, incoherence and contradictions in the evidence, and concentrated on the subject index. I, I wish, Bill, that I had a great deal more time to devote to uh, compiling the index. I, I feel it has definite imperfections that should be greatly refined. Uh, there are also some errors and omissions. Uh, in spite of those uh, defects, I think it has been useful. Well, it's an invaluable research aid to anyone who is doing any sort of uh, serious work on, on the 26 volumes. I think that uh, both the defenders of the commission's uh, point of view and the critics would, uh, would agree to that. Uh, which leads me, if I can interject just a, uh, a point here, you say uh, in the explanatory note of the subject index, you say, while the subject index utilizes the footnotes in the report, it derives primarily from detailed study and critical analysis of the hearings and exhibits. Consequently, it includes negative references. I wonder if you would ex explain uh, precisely what you mean by that and tell our, our listeners what those negative references uh, consist of. Uh, yes, certainly, Bill. Um, the uh, Warren Report, of course, provides footnotes which document its assertions 
or supposedly do. In some cases, they actually do not, I might add. But theoretically, the footnotes document their assertions. Uh, For example, in the area of marksmanship, uh, the marksmanship of the alleged lone assassin, um, the footnotes uh, refer you back to the testimony of various persons who provided the commission with uh, some support for its conclusion that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald did have the necessary skill as a rifleman. But um, those footnotes do not, of course, refer back to such testimony as, for example, uh, Dean Adams Andrew Jr. Andrews Jr. of New Orleans, a lawyer who had apparently had had contacts with Oswald, who had consulted him about uh, uh, seeking a reversal of his unsatisfactory discharge from the Marine Corps, and who gave us his personal opinion, a most striking and strong statement in which he stated his categorical conviction that Oswald could not have committed this crime because he did not and could not have had the necessary skill as a rifleman, in which he discussed his own experience as a marksman when he was in the service and the deterioration of any skill, even if it is at a high level, without constant and daily target practice. And this this was a, a most striking passage of testimony, which was totally ignored. Uh, I, I believed that it was very necessary in any discussion of Oswald's marksmanship, and I do have such a classification in the subject index, to include not only what was said by what I might call the government witnesses, um, who provided some degree or another of support of the Commission's conclusion, but to provide the contrary evidence. But this is not really a a prime example of negative uh, um, references. I think a better one would be the uh, example of, uh, let us say, the assertions about Oswald's use of the alias A. Hardell. Yes. Uh, in this case, the Commission makes a series of assertions of fact. Uh, for example, that when Oswald was being driven from the Texas theater to the police station under arrest, ostensibly for the murder of Tippett, that he had refused to uh, give his name or his address, and that the detective seated next to him in the um, automobile uh, had um, put his hand in Oswald's pocket, pulled out his wallet, and found in that wallet a fabricated identification card in the name of A. Hydell. Now, um, in my index, I include not only references to the testimony which assert that this um, took place in the car, but I include also the contemporaneous report of the detective in question, in which he gives an account of this ride from the theater to the police station, and he makes no mention whatsoever of finding this card in the name of A. Hardell or any other reference to the name A. Hardell. And not this detective alone, but in fact the contemporaneous reports of all of the police officers in that car. And, and I call it a negative reference in the sense that it, these documents do not include, as one would expect that they would include, 
a reference to this highly important event that supposedly took place, the discovery of a fabricated identification card on the suspect. And uh, there are many other instances of this kind, but I think the general idea is quite clear that I have tried to include um, citations to testimony or documents which should bear out contentions in the report but fail to do so. Right. Um, in mentioning Oswald, we're almost uh, jumping to a question that I was going to save for later in the program, but um, it's the question of Oswald's guilt. Um, Life magazine and the Saturday Evening Post, uh, amongst the mass media publications, uh, have begun to question the findings and the conclusions and the overall viability of the reconstruction of the assassination made by the Warren Commission. Uh, but these publications, uh, which are, let's say, eminently respectable, accept uh, almost without qualification uh, the case which the Commission maintains against Oswald as the lone assassin. Um, and in terms of of the physical evidence, uh, they maintain that its weight is almost overwhelming. And I think perhaps uh, Epstein uh, alone amongst the critics uh, um, does the same thing. Um, do you think that Oswald's guilt uh, and implication in this crime uh, has or has not been amply demonstrated? I think that the evidence clearly demonstrates that Oswald was entirely innocent of this crime, and indeed of the two other crimes charged to him, the murder of Tippett and the alleged attack on General Walker. Uh, and I say this purely on the basis of the official published evidence. Uh, I, I'm sorry that uh, one uh, aspect of the evidence has received quite inadequate attention, except perhaps from Leo Savage in his book The Oswald Affair, and that is Oswald's alibi. Uh, even by the Commission's rather unfair reconstruction of his alleged movements by which he was able to reach the second floor of the depository from the sixth floor of the depository after a number of rather time-consuming uh, procedures uh, when he theoretically left the window from which the shots had been fired, and that is he had to wedge his way out from behind this barricade of cartons. He had to hide the rifle rather carefully, was not discovered uh, immediately, and run down the stairs and enter a lunchroom. Uh, the commission reenacted this um, alleged um, um, progress of Oswald from the sixth floor window to the second floor lunchroom, uh, timing him as against the police officer, Marion L. Baker, who encountered him there, uh, which in itself was most unfair because he should have been timed against Roy Truly, the superintendent of the depository who had preceded Baker on the stairs. Uh, this is one anomaly. There are other anomalies in the reconstruction. I don't think I should take the time to go into them now, but even under the commission's um, reconstruction and its uh, data, Oswald had a margin of a maximum of 16 seconds and a minimum of one second 
to uh, reach that second floor lunchroom had he been coming from the sixth floor. I think it's it's a travesty of justice to convict a man on a margin of 1 to 16 seconds of a crime where the other evidence is so deplorably feeble, where there is no motive, there is no means, and there is no opportunity. And in the process of depriving this man of what appears to me as well as to uh, Mr. Sauvage and to other critics to be a an extremely powerful alibi, uh, there has been a great deal of shenanigans about the bottle of Coke that he was or was not drinking when he was encountered by M.L. Baker, the yes. policeman. Uh, the initial stories out of Dallas was that when Oswald was encountered, he was drinking a Coke. Oswald himself, in his first interrogation by Captain Fritz on Friday afternoon, said that he was drinking a Coke when this incident occurred. And um, I think as the facts of the case were assembled with more uh, detail by the authorities, it became apparent that had he truly been holding a Coke, it would have taken him more than his margin of about 16 seconds to fish change out of his pocket, insert it in the machine, wait for the bottle to drop, open the bottle, and and be standing with the Coke in his hand. This destroyed the um, allegation that he had sufficient time to reach the second floor and to be standing there calmly. Uh, when M.L. Baker approached him, and so the story was revised, uh, it was then said on all sides that Oswald was not holding a bottle of Coke uh, when he was uh, encountered by Baker. But oddly enough, when people are off guard who have some authoritative knowledge of this uh, incident, when they're off guard, they seem to restore his bottle of Coke, M.L. Baker himself, when he was asked by the FBI, I believe it was September 23rd, just a few days before the report was issued, to uh, provide uh, an affidavit. It's not clear why they asked him. He had already testified. But he was asked to give an affidavit repeating in in very uh, summary form um, the fact that he had been in the motorcade, that he had heard shots, and that he had dashed into the building and what had then transpired. Uh, it was written in this affidavit, I ran up to the second floor and I saw a man drinking a Coke. And then the words drinking a Coke have been crossed out and initialed MLB by Baker. And very recently, I believe it was uh, late in December, Mr. Albert Jenner, Jr., who was a senior counsel to the Warren Commission and responsible for some vital areas of the investigation, uh, he gave a uh, broadcast, a telecast, I'm sorry, it was a television interview um, on a program called uh, Your Right to Say It, which was broadcast, or I should say rebroadcast in New York at the end of December. It had been uh, taped uh, perhaps some weeks before that. Yes, I think it was announced for uh, showing locally on uh, NET, the um, local uh, educational television station, but I, I haven't seen it myself as yet. Perhaps it will be seen later. Well, I hope it will be, but I hope it will be seen by an audience which uh, is in a position to recognize the almost unbelievable misstatements of important fact in Mr. Jenner's 
presentation on that program, as well as certain uh, statements and assertions which seem to me and to others who are well informed about this case to be pure invention. Uh, One of the statements that Mr. Jenner made, and I think in this case he was inadvertently correct uh, in discussing the evidence against Oswald, he, he made the statement that Oswald was and counted on the second floor drinking a Coke uh, within a very short time after the shots. And I say, I believe he was inadvertently correct. He would not uh, intentionally have uh, said, have acknowledged that he was drinking a Coke since he was defending the conclusions of the commission. And, and I that believe vitiates the time reconstruction absolutely, that they provide. I see. Absolutely. Indeed, I think the whole time reconstruction is vitiated even without the spot of Coke. I mentioned it in particular because it's the most graphic reason and it, it's not perhaps uh, very easy to go into the other details of the reenactment which involve timing and other factors of a somewhat mathematical nature uh, in which to make this um, quite graphic to the listener. Uh, I think even without the uh, deprivation of a bottle of Coke, this alibi is sustained because the, the reenactment itself is a, a, a very defective one. I think anyone who is uh, interested in, in looking into this further should read uh, Mr. Leo Savage's chapter on Oswald's alibi in his book, The Oswald Affair, which is published by the World Publishing Company. Well, now you have a book coming out yourself in the fall, Accessories After the Fact. Will you deal with some of this in your book? or? Yes, yes, I'm dealing with this uh, as part of a, a larger uh, chapter on Oswald's activities in the depository before the shots and, and after the shots. Well, do you feel then, Mrs. Marr, uh, this is a question that I put to a recent critic on this program. If indeed um, Oswald was not doing the things in the depository and elsewhere imputed to him by the commission, do you feel nonetheless that it is incumbent upon critics of the report to provide some kind of reconstruction of their own uh, as to what did happen or, or not? Certainly not, Bill. Certainly not. Uh, any attempt to give the critics parity with Warren Commission is is sophistry and is most unwarranted. The Warren Commission had virtually unlimited resources, both in manpower, funds, laboratory facilities, whatever was needed, and subpoena power, I might add, subpoena power, which is by far from being the least of these necessary powers and authorities and resources for an investigation. Uh, The critics... Uh, up until very recently, have worked unknown to each other, making independently quite parallel discoveries and reaching parallel conclusions. And I think it's only perhaps within the last year that there has been any um, continuous uh, exchange of information or even acquaintance among most of the critics. Uh, There was some um, interchange, I think, beginning not too long after the report was published, but um, we were then working in an atmosphere of total deafness and taboo. No one, uh, and certainly not these important uh, periodicals that you mentioned, like the Saturday Evening Post, no one was willing to entertain any discussion which cast doubt on the Warren Report. Well, what do you attribute this uh, change in climate to? What 
has caused this turnabout in the fortunes of of the critics of the report and uh, uh, presumably uh, the receptive audience that is now reading uh, these critiques. I believe that Epstein's book Inquest was a pivotal factor in in opening the door that had been tightly shut. It, it was uh, a book that was introduced by a quite eminent journalist, Richard Revere, uh, and which had many credentials uh, and which had quite uniquely the uh, fruit of Epstein's personal interviews of many of the lawyers and many of the members of the commission who gave him information uh, which was otherwise unknown and unsuspected, which cast very serious doubt upon the working methods of the Warren Commission. Um, I believe this was the crucial factor in opening the path for the discussion which has since developed the national debate, one might almost say. And we've come a very long way from the, uh, the era of taboo when this was simply not discussed and anywhere. It's quite respectable now, isn't it? Well, it's respectable if you, if you uh, abide by certain rules. And one of the rules is that you respect and, and affirm the probity of the Warren Commission, although you're now permitted to um, charge the Commission with carelessness and with inadequacy in its investigation. Indeed, uh, Senator Cooper himself was very recently quoted in the New York Times, I believe, as saying that uh, there were defects in the report, there were uh, areas that should have been investigated that were not. Now, um, it is also respectable to say there might have been more than one assassin, so long as you affirm that Oswald was guilty, was implicated, was a part of perhaps a conspiracy of two people, and of course it's preferable to postulate that these were two Oswalds, two random, unmotivated, neurotic people who had some kind of uh, motiveless motive. Uh, it is not yet acceptable uh, to the establishment media to even discuss the possibility of Oswald's total innocence, nor to discuss the even more horrifying, to them at least, lack of probity of the Warren Commission. Now, I, I don't think any of the critics relish making charges uh, for the sake of their own uh, sensationalism, and it is rather sensational, I suppose, to even suggest that the Warren Commission deliberately uh, issued a false indictment of Oswald. Yet, it is really inescapable that there are many assertions in the report which are uh, clearly misrepresentations of the evidence and were written dishonestly. Now, uh, Congressman Gerald Ford in his book Portrait of the Assassin has maintained that nothing went into that report that wasn't cleared by every one of the seven members of the commission. That they went over every sentence and every word and nothing could go in that had any sort of dubious uh, uh, antecedents.
In fact, he said, the unofficial motto of the commission was, truth is our only client here. But though if this is truth, then black is white, night is day, and war is peace. This is not truth. This is a false document. And I think it's a matter of perhaps some more time before those who would not even at one point discuss uh, any skepticism of the finding that Oswald was a lone assassin, but who are now willing to discuss the possibility that he had an accomplice. I think perhaps another year or two, given more time, uh, more knowledge uh, of the actual facts by uh, uh, the media and uh, by writers and by public figures, I think it will become quite apparent to them that it is uh, essential to discuss the innocence of Oswald. If in this country we have any true um, fidelity to these uh, principles to which we give great lip service, and one is the principle of justice to all individuals, the obscure and the powerful. It doesn't matter who they are. Justice is an indivisible thing, and if we are prepared to sacrifice it in any situation, and I don't care what the apparent stakes may be, but the minute you are prepared to sacrifice Anne Oswald of any description, and you don't need to like him, and I don't say that I myself find him easy to understand or to identify as a person, nor, nor would I even say that I like him, I certainly don't admire him. This is not necessary in order to defend this man if he is innocent. Well, you have attempted to understand Oswald. You have attempted to uh, examine a possible role for him. Um, I recall two articles uh, that appeared in 1966 in the minority of one, and I wondered if we could address ourselves to them now. In one article, uh, you were examining uh, the contention of some critics that Oswald conceivably had been an agent uh, of espionage uh, on the part of the United States government, uh, although the article that you wrote uh, dealt primarily with uh, Lee Oswald and the United States uh, United States State Department, uh, and you discussed such things as uh, uh, the obtaining of his passport to go abroad, uh, the lookout file that should have been established uh, upon his return as a defector. I wonder if uh, we could uh, address ourselves to some of the questions that uh, you felt uh, were raised by what you said was the Commission's uh, inadequacy in, in confronting or dealing with this, uh, this evidence. Is it conceivable that, uh, uh, that uh, the government was winking at uh, uh, known spy activities uh, by a former citizen when Oswald was readmitted to this country? No, I have no confidence in the government's uh, care uh, than, than to think such a thing. The government's care... Uh, for our national security. Uh, I think we must go back even beyond the issuance of the passport or the failure to insert lookout cards in this man's file. Uh, go back to the time in 1959, in October, that he was on his way to the Soviet Union. He had uh, sailed from New Orleans and landed in Le Havre and gone to London. 
and according to one report, he left London on October 9, 1959, uh, by air, arrived in Helsinki on the 10th, where he stayed for some days, obtained a, uh, a, vi- a visa to enter the Soviet Union, and proceeded to the Soviet Union from Helsinki. Now, the documents bring to light a quite puzzling phenomenon. Uh, the report, as I mentioned, says that Oswald left London on October 9, 1959, for Helsinki. But the exhibits, and I might add that the exhibits, it has been admitted by count, former counsel to the Commission that the exhibits that went into these 26 volumes were not examined. They were not selected by the legal counsel. It is not known who selected them, who compiled them, who public, you know, who who yeah. um, arranged them for publication. But it has been admitted that uh, the lawyers themselves did not make the selection, and it's perfectly obvious that no careful check was made uh, to ensure that the uh, exhibits and the testimony published, or I should say, just the exhibits, not the testimony, the exhibits in this case, were consistent with the assertions and conclusions in the report. So that in these exhibits, we find, with reference to the date of Oswald's um, departure from London, we find in his passport a stamp of the uh, airport officer, London Airport, uh, showing that Oswald left on October 10th, 1959. Now, uh, this in itself may seem the most insignificant error of one day in, in presenting a date which is very remote from the uh, circumstance of the assassination, remote in time and, and other uh, levels. However, in conjunction with this, there is also a series of reports by the CIA, uh, which uh, made an investigation and informed the Commission that there was no commercial flight by which Oswald could have left London on October the 10th, 1959, and arrived in Helsinki in time to register sometime before midnight in a Helsinki hotel, which he did. He did register before midnight in a Helsinki hotel. And it is only if you arbitrarily change his departure date from London that you can account for his presence there uh, when he arrived. However, since the passport has been stamped October 10th, the Commission has not only misrepresented the, the date in its report, but in misrepresenting the date, it has uh, dismissed entirely without confronting or solving it the problem of how, how did Oswald get from London to Helsinki? Uh, is it possible that the CIA is mistaken that there was a commercial flight? Is it possible that he went on some military transport? I mentioned the possibility of military transport because the documents indicate that at a much later stage in June, uh, in early 1962, prior to his return to the United States in June 62, there were problems of, of Oswald's travel together with his wife and child by then back to the United States, financial problems. Uh, it, it had not been found possible for him to obtain the money needed for this travel. And it seems that he himself suggested the possibility of his return via some military aircraft. And I believe he specifically mentioned uh, from a German base, which suggests to me that perhaps he had one prior experience of such travel. 
In any case, this did not happen because when all other means were exhausted of his obtaining funds with which to return to the United States, the State Department, although he met none of the criteria that would entitle him for a loan of government funds, did advance to him the necessary money for his return together with his wife and child. And in many other aspects of their relationship with Oswald, the State Department behaved in a way that anyone who has studied its operation in cases of this kind, or indeed in cases involving far milder offenses than attempted um, defection, uh, than announced intention to give military secrets to the Russians, uh, their behavior has been so utterly atypical, so utterly out of line, and so consistently out of line, that questions must arise as to Oswald's true relationship with United States authorities at that period of time. What was the Soviet attitude, the attitude of the Soviet government, uh, with reference to Oswald after he uh, appeared in the uh, in the Soviet Union? Do, do the supporting uh, volumes give us an indication... Bill, there is no direct evidence from Soviet authorities on this. It is true that the exhibits include certain uh, documents out of the Soviet Union file on Oswald, which was turned over to the uh, United States authorities by the Soviet embassy in Washington. But uh, these documents do not cover their evaluation of him when he arrived and attempted to defect so that the information we have is fragmentary and uh, hearsay, but uh, insofar as light is thrown on this in the volumes, it appears that the Soviets were most reluctant to accept him as a, um, as a naturalized citizen of the Soviet Union. In fact, it was their um, uh, coldness toward him that apparently caused him to contrive this so-called suicide attempt in which it's obvious from study of the circumstances that he was made quite sure in slashing his left wrist that he was not going to die, that he knew that somebody would arrive momentarily, as indeed took place. He was then taken to a Soviet hospital where, interestingly enough, he of course received a psychiatric screening, a psychiatric evaluation, as is true. I think in almost any American hospital attempted suicide cases are considered psychiatric cases and are screened. And the findings were that this man is not dangerous to anyone, that um, he, he was stable, knew what he was doing, he's perfectly rational. I, I think that uh, their documents at least suggest that, that the Soviet authorities themselves had reached the conclusion that uh, he contrived this alleged suicide attempt um, I don't mean that it didn't take place. I mean that it wasn't a genuine attempt to, to kill himself uh, in order to uh, provide himself with uh, a guarantee of an extension of his stay in the Soviet Union. Uh, he was then apparently given a stateless person's uh, document which permitted him to work in a radio parts factory in Minsk. There is no indication at any time that the Soviet authorities uh, accepted or trusted him. I think they were very dubious of him. They never gave him citizenship, and he did apply for it, by the way. He did apply, and it was rejected by the Soviet presidium. Uh, this is, of course, only hearsay evidence from one of the um, 
officials of the American embassy in Moscow who was told this, I believe, at a cocktail party by a Soviet official, but there no, there's no uh, documentation on the point. I, I think the Soviet government did not accept as valid Oswald's defection and his declarations of loyalty to the Soviet Union. I think they must have thought that he was untrustworthy, not merely in the sense of an unstable personality, and there had been defectors who were merely unstable personalities who were trying for reasons of their domestic uh, uh, relations to uh, escape responsibility by, by means of defection. I, I think they suspected him as being uh, politically a fraud, that he was not really um, seeking Soviet citizenship out of deep conviction or anything like that. They may even have suspected him of being an American agent, although they didn't have access then to all the documents which have now been published and which seem to me to present a strong prima facie case for his having at that time, in 1959, a clandestine uh, assignment from some American government agency. I couldn't go any further than that, Bill, because the evidence doesn't permit anything beyond this uh, inference. I noticed in... Uh Inquest, I believe it was. Uh, Epstein cites uh, the fact that the uh, Soviet Union, at least their NKVD or one of their intelligence divisions, furnished uh, the Warren Commission or our government with certain information as to Oswald's rifle capability during the time he was in the Soviet Union. Am I correct in that? Uh, is this in the report or or in the 26 volumes? No. Or is this some no, it isn't. It's not in the report. No, uh, this information was received from a Soviet defector who, interestingly enough, defected uh, not long after the um, uh, assassination. It was a matter of months, as I recall it, although without checking Epstein's t uh, text, I wouldn't be sure. Uh, this defector was able to uh, leave either the Soviet Union or uh, perhaps some embassy, it's not specified, where he may have been stationed, bearing with him the Soviet Union's file on Oswald. Uh, this is what Epstein uh, asserts, and it has not been challenged by anybody. And uh, I don't know the contents of the file he brought, other than uh, what Epstein quotes, that he was such a poor marksman that when he went on hunting parties with uh, his friends in Minsk, uh, using a shotgun, which it has been established he did possess a shotgun and belonged to a hunting society in Minsk. But he was such a poor shot that to, to save face, to save him embarrassment, uh, his friends would give him some of the game they had shot because he, had, he hadn't succeeded in bringing down anything. Uh, and this, uh, of course, was not mentioned anywhere in the one report of the 26 volumes, nor did they even mention the defector in question, or the fact that he had um, brought out with him and turned over to the American authorities a file on Oswald, a Soviet file on Oswald, nor do we know from Epstein's book or from any other source the other contents of that file. Hmm. Moving uh, Lee Oswald physically from the Soviet Union then uh, to Dallas uh, some weeks prior to the assassination, uh, you've examined uh, a number of uh, contradictory um, appearances 
by a Lee Oswald, and uh, it seems to me it, it, it pertains to a resolving of an issue of not only identification but veracity by the confrontation of eyewitnesses to uh, a particular happening, um, one eyewitness with the other, and, and you maintain that uh, indeed the commission uh, didn't do that. And I wonder if you could uh, relate to our listeners the particulars of that particular, uh, that, that specific article that you, you wrote. Do you recall what I mean? Well, I think you're referring to the incident of the auto demonstration in Bogard. Yes. Um, uh, allegations about a customer who identified himself as Oswald and whom he, Bogard, believed to be Oswald. Uh, th- this is, uh, really was first brought up by, uh, again, by Leo Savage in a magazine article, I believe, in Commentary early in 1964, or perhaps in the Reporter magazine. Even no, it was Commentary because commentary. it was an article that was crucial in, in my interest in the case. Yes. Well, he, he first um, uh, wrote about this series of, uh, of allegations by various witnesses of a man identified as Oswald, which suggested to him the possibility that Oswald had been deliberately impersonated in order to incriminate him in advance of the assassination. Now, I have made a particular and close study of the whole constellation of two Oswald episodes. Uh, so far as the Bogard one is concerned, uh, I think the the um, onus there must be placed on the two FBI agents who interviewed Bogard the morning after the assassination when someone other than Bogard reported to the FBI that Bogard had indicated that Oswald had come uh, to look at a car and had said that he expected a large sum of money in the near future with which he could buy this car paying cash and that would have required some 3000 to $3,500. Um, this in itself immediately suggested that he might be uh, in a conspiracy uh, and expected to receive money for having shot at the president. And this is in the context of the circumstances as they existed on Saturday morning, the 23rd of November. Now, the two FBI agents who interviewed Bogard, uh, it seems to me under the most elementary concepts of criminal investigation, should immediately have taken this man to the Dallas police station because there was much corroboration for his story. There were other people in the auto agency who were able to confirm that such a man had been there. Uh, um, Another of the salesmen, Oren Brown, had also jotted down the name Oswald on a slip of paper, as had Bogard, and uh, there was no reason to suspect that this man had invented the story. He, he had not even reported the story. It had been done by another salesman. And uh, under the most elementary uh, criminal investigative procedures, those two FBI agents should have taken Bogard, the prime witness, to the police station where Oswald was under interrogation, where he was being shown to witnesses in identification lineups. This they did not do, and I was at a loss to understand that not only did they not confront Bogard with Oswald and ask him to say whether or not this was indeed the customer, but uh, so far as the available records indicate, they did not even report this to the Dallas police or other authorities who were investigating the assassination which had occurred on the day before. 
They did not even report this, even though it was, again, prima facie evidence that this man might have been a paid assassin. I don't believe he was, and I don't believe that this has been uh, borne out in any way, on the contrary, by subsequent evidence, but I'm speaking in terms of the contemporaneous circumstances. And I I simply fail to understand the uh, failure of the FBI to take the necessary steps. Now, uh, that failure must be aligned with certain other evidence, and I'm sorry to be leaving the question to Oswald, I'd like to return to that. Please. But the other evidence of an ambiguous relationship between Oswald and the FBI, Uh, one was the famous incident of the fact that in his notebook he had noted the name, phone number, and license plate numbers of FBI agent James P. Hostey, Jr., the man who was, in fact, in charge of the Oswald dossier, and who claimed that he had never seen, spoken to, nor interviewed Oswald, but had merely made two very brief visits to the home of Ruth Payne in Irving, and uh, who was unable himself to account for the presence of the license plate numbers in Oswald's notebook. But the commission says in its report that Marina Oswald testified that she had copied these license plate numbers because Oswald had once told her that if some if any FBI agent came around to do that. Now, the statement in the report is quite literally correct. Marina Oswald did so testify, and this is typical of some of the the fundamental misrepresentation, because you can tell the literal truth and still misrepresent the truth. It's true that Marina Oswald so testified, but it is also true that on the two, only two occasions that she could have copied down this number, the commission itself established in its investigation and its examination of, of witnesses that on neither occasion could she possibly have seen the license plates, much less the license plate numbers. So that uh, it is a, a, uh, an evasion of a rather ugly sort to say in the report, which is the literal truth, yes, Marina Oswald did testify that she had jotted down the license plate numbers and given them to her husband. But uh, the commission proved to its own satisfaction Mr. Jenner himself, uh, accompanied by Secret Service agent John Joe Howlett, uh, experimented to see if it had been possible for her to copy these numbers. And they said to each other, you cannot even see the license plate, much less the numbers on the one occasion when the car was parked at the house. On the uh, other visit of Hostie, he had parked the car uh, about a block away, or a good part of a block away, where not only could the license plate numbers not be seen, but you would have no way of knowing that that was the car in which Hostie arrived. Now, uh, of course, I'm treating this episode in my my study of the uh, Warren Commission's work, which is called as you said before, accessories after the fact. Uh, but before I, I elaborated this in the manuscript, I felt that I should make a further attempt to understand this by writing to the commission counsel who had, in fact, investigated this and performed the experiment, that is to say, Mr. Jenner. And so I wrote to Mr. Jenner, I believe it was quite early or in the middle of the year 1965, I wrote to Mr. Jenner detailing all of the 
uh, known facts as I had gleaned them from the published documentation, uh, which presented a dilemma that while the report says that she copied these numbers, that all of the available evidence suggests that she could not have copied those numbers and that we still, therefore, still did not know how those numbers found their way into Oswald's notebook. And uh, when uh, one considers the many other ambiguities that involve his possible relationship with the FBI, that has become a rather important question. How did the numbers get there? I presented all of this to Mr. Jenner in a most respectful uh, letter asking if he could possibly enlighten me. And I received uh, a very a courteous acknowledgement in which Mr. Jenner said that he had to leave town just then on some um, legal business, but he would return on July 19, 1965, would look into the matter, and I would hear from him very shortly. Uh, and I never did hear from him. As uh, the weeks passed, and I think even months passed, I became very concerned that he had not, as he had volunteered to do, uh, written me, uh, about this to clarify. So I wrote him again, referring to our previous correspondence, to his um, undertaking to write to me and clarify this matter, and uh, um, asking him to please let me hear from him, and that I hoped he would still write and still give me the facts. And that letter uh, has never been answered at all. Uh, in view of the fact that I was unable to obtain any clarification, uh, I felt that I had to treat this in, in my examination of the evidence and of the lack of fidelity between the Warren Report on one side and 26 volumes of hearings and exhibits on the other. Uh, I know I may be leading you into the area of speculation, but the question that seems to present itself in my mind then is, uh, as, we, as we possibly see Oswald uh, in the role of uh, a creature of perhaps the CIA or FBI uh, on the one hand uh, you see him involved not at all uh, in the assassination and yet we find him in the Texas School Book Depository at the time and, uh, and does this pose a dilemma or an interesting uh, uh, occurrence of, uh, of of chance, or, or or just what? How do we how do we deal with this, or do you feel compelled to 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 find a, a thread that would uh, make it meaningful? Uh, Bill, I, I can only say that the known evidence presents such a mystery and such a paradox and such a potentially sinister. Um, circumstance that it must be re-examined. That is all I can say. I, I feel I do not have sufficient information. I was not able to obtain sufficient information because I wrote also to um, Congressman Ford and J. Lee Rankin on other aspects of what appeared to me to be a most ambiguous um, set of facts involving Oswald's possible relationship with the FBI or other government agencies without reply, again, I would add, um, I believe this must be looked at very carefully and very objectively by a new investigation, as must, must almost every other aspect of the so-called evidence against Oswald, 
which I think almost without exception is far less secure, far less hard evidence than one would think from reading the Warren Report alone. I think many um, uh, analysts of the report in quite good faith have uh, had at an earlier stage um, written criticisms of the Commission's methods and to an extent of its um, apparent prejudice and, and uh, preconceptions, but had accepted the basic findings. I have in mind uh, Professor Herbert Packer, who wrote in the nation, even Murray Kempton, who wrote in the New Republic, uh, and Dwight MacDonald, I would add, who wrote in Esquire magazine, all of this at a quite early stage, uh, uh, late in 1964, early 65, accepting what the Commission presented as hard evidence, as being, in fact, hard evidence, which a scrutiny of the hearings and exhibits reveals to be quite soft and, in some cases, quite slimy and slippery. Well, in, in, uh, in deference to Murray Kempton, I think he did say at, at the time that, uh, for the most part, the Warren Commission, even at that early date, appeared to him to be no better than a prosecution document. Indeed, that was yeah. the title of his article, The Case for the Prosecution. He has since, incidentally, in his introduction to uh, Professor Richard Popkin's paperback book, um, The Two Oswalds, I believe it's called, yes. or is it The False Oswald? I forget. But um, Kempton wrote an introduction to that paperback in which it's evident that on the basis of subsequent revelations, he has nothing but contempt for the Warren Commission's conclusions and its report. And again, this is uh, an evidence of a gradually rising shift, an expanding shift in public opinion and in the opinion of uh, opinion makers, which I believe in the next few years will see even the present taboos broken down, that it will become respectable to discuss Oswald's innocence and it will become respectable to criticize the commission in terms other than mere haste and slovenliness and carelessness. Well, if with that note, I'm going to have to close in the hope that <laughs> the dialogue that we have been uh, engaging in in recent weeks on this program uh, will continue in that spirit. Uh, we've been talking with uh, Sylvia Marr, um, the author of a subject index to the Warren Report and considered by her colleagues to be the foremost authority on the report itself. Uh, I want to thank you, Mrs. Marr, for coming to the studio today. Where do you go now in your... I'm hoping to return to New York tonight, Bill, and I want to thank you for letting me come here. Thank you so much. Welcome back. That was an uh, archived... Uh, interview uh, with uh, Sylvia Marr uh, from 1967 uh, involving her research uh, deconstructing the Warren Commission report on the Kennedy assassination, which occurred uh, 60 years ago uh, this week. And uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment. <laughs> Oh! 
Uh, the voice of Candy Staten, and uh, you're the best thing. I'm the best thing you ever had. And, of course, uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for uh, this Saturday afternoon, November 25th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Our concluding segment also involves the 60th anniversary of the assassination of uh, the 35th president of the United States, John F. Kennedy. Uh, This is an interview uh, with Harold Weisberg, another uh, researcher on the Kennedy assassination, which uh, he also set out to deconstruct the Warren Commission and the official report that was issued uh, in the aftermath of the assassination. This interview was uh, done in December of 1966. Let's listen in. This is William O'Connell, and we're talking again today about the Warren Commission report on the assassination of President Kennedy. And we have in the studio Harold Weisberg, the author of Whitewash, and a even newer book called Whitewash Two, which is subtitled The FBI Secret Service Cover-Up. Uh, Mr. Weisberg is a newspaper and magazine writer and a former Senate investigator and also an intelligence and political analyst. Um, His earlier specialties included cartels and economic and political warfare. And then during the early days of World War II, I believe, your personal investigations and writings were credited with uh, laying a foundation for the taking over of enemy property and foreign funds controls. Is that correct? Yes, and the government got a pretty good income from some of the cases. (laughs) One of the things that I especially wanted to go into in treating, as we are now, some of the evidence uh, in the case in great detail and with thoroughness, I wonder if we could examine the reconstructions by the commission of the assassination itself from the depository area on Elm Street and also the reconstruction that the commission gave to the slaying of Officer Tippett. And to lead into that, I wanted to ask you about a statement that you make and ask how you justify so categoric a statement when you say that Oswald could have killed no one. I add one thing to it, according to the Commission's best evidence. And I believe on this subject, the Commission's best evidence is quite credible. The Commission established Oswald's innocence because of the bankruptcy with which it approached the effort to establish his guilt. Everybody is familiar with the more dramatic aspects of this. Uh, For example, the witness Brennan, uh, perhaps the least credible witness in any official proceeding. This is a man who qualified himself as a witness by saying that he lied when it served his convenience. He was taken to a lineup to identify Oswald, and he is presumably the source of the description. And yet at the lineup, he said he couldn't identify Oswald. When you say the description, you mean the description that went out over the police radio with reference to a suspect? Yes. Now, this this addresses this simple thing of the description that went out over the police radio in a very comprehensible way addresses itself to the integrity of everybody involved. Uh, We're led to believe that this description came from Brennan. Recognizing the improbability of it, uh, the commission said, most probably. Now, here we have a man who is the source of identification of uh, of an assassin, a presidential assassin. The police presumably are going to solve this crime, and they get a description from him. 
and they broadcast the description. But strangely enough, the police don't know who gave them the description, so when the case comes to trial, as presumably it was always intended to, they have no way of producing the eyewitness. Either Brennan was the eyewitness who gave them the description that was broadcast, or he was not. Either the description that was broadcast came from an eyewitness, or it did not. Now, if it came from an eyewitness, how in the world were the police going to produce him if, he didn't, if they didn't know his name? How were they going to have a witness for the trial? The description is broadcast is not that of Brennan. It contains information that Brennan did not give, if any of this can be regarded as information. There was no uh, information as to the nature of the clothes worn by the suspect in the broadcast that was given. Correct, but Brennan, but Brennan did give such data. I see. And it contained information on a weapon, which Brennan did not give. Now, where was Brennan standing in relation to uh, the depository well, building? When we get to Brennan, I will qualify everything by saying, according to. All right. Because this is the least credible man in the world. All right, then instead of beginning with Brennan, let's go back and see if we can retrace in some kind of sequence uh, the reconstruction. The reconstruction. And yes. you take it back to uh, as an earlier point uh, than the 22nd, if you like, Mr. Weisberg, in terms of... Uh, uh, what the commission alleges in terms of the reconstruction as to uh, the weapon and the paper bag and so on and so forth. But I think we should treat this in some detail, and yes. preferably chronologically, if that's all well, right. Well, since you. we've already started with this thing of Brennan, let me finish with that first, Surely. because uh, the reader of the report is led to believe that even though the commission almost disavows him, Brennan is the identifier of Oswald. And Congressman Ford, in his own writing for profit, identifies Brennan as the most important witness before the commission. The truth of the matter is that the important witness here was a Dallas police officer, Marion L. Baker, whose credibility was in the same class as Brennan's. I have in both books traced many of Baker's statements. The thing that distinguishes him from all other witnesses that I have studied, and I've studied most of them, is that on none of the many occasions he was interviewed did he ever give the story that he gave before the commission. Now, who are you speaking of now? Baker. Marion L. Baker, the Dallas police officer, who had this famous gun-in-the-gut encounter with Oswald in the second-floor lunchroom of the Texas School Book Depository Building. Now, it is Baker who tends to make credible Brennan's story that he saw Oswald in the sixth-floor window. And it is Baker who did, in fact, have an encounter with Oswald. There can be no question about this. Uh, there was... Uh, now, where was Baker in the motorcade? Baker was in one of the follow-up motorcycles. He was not flanking the president. He was behind it. And according to his testimony, he had just turned from Main Street, down which the motorcade had gone through downtown Dallas. Was he immediately behind the presidential car? Several cars behind. Uh, he... Uh, I, I think that his testimony will place pretty much where he was. The motorcade turned from Main Street to the right or to the north on Houston, and then turned to the left down Elm Street, which, in a sense, flanks Main. It was Baker's testimony that he had just turned from Main into Houston when a gust of wind hit him, and there was a strong wind there that day. It almost blew Mrs. Kennedy's hat off at the same corner. Yes. And... Just after he turned the corner, he heard the first sound that he identified as a rifle shot. He testified that he revved up his um, uh, motorcycle and got close to the depository, jumped off of it, and dashed into the building. 
In the building, he picked up Roy Truly, the manager, who was a credible witness. And they rushed upstairs, intending to go to the roof, because what attracted Baker's attention to the building was not anybody in the window, and he had at least as good a view as Brennan, and I tell you a better one, because Brennan was close to the building. I was looking upward at too sharp an angle. When they got to the second floor, uh, there was a... Too sharp an angle to... To really see well, uh, because he was looking sharply upward. Baker was looking at a more flat angle, because he was looking not from far away, but from a little bit of a distance. I see. Uh, uh, Drennan said that the man he saw was leaning up against a wall. And Baker, as I say, was looking closer to straight on. Now, it's six stories high, but the distance from um, uh, between Elm and Houston is sufficient so that the angle of Baker's vision included more than the angle of Brennan's vision. I make this point simply to point out that with Baker having had his attention attracted by the first shot and having looked at the building, he reports having seen nothing in that window. I see. And, he was, and his attention was attracted to immediately above the window to the roof. And he testified that the flight of pigeons from the roof made him suspect that something might be there. And it was for this reason, not because he saw anybody in the window, that he dashed into the building. And he picked up Mr. Truly, the manager, and they rushed to the second floor. Now, to give you an idea of how they rushed, everybody who testifies about it, in effect, says that uh, Baker was bowling people out of the way. They hit the uh, two-way door, the double-hinged door on the first floor, that's so common in offices, just a waist-high door, uh, so hard and so fast that the mechanism wouldn't operate. And they rushed to the second floor. Now, the stairway uh, in the school book depository building is an open stairway. This is the front stairway. No, this is the back stairway. This is the back stairway. I'm talking now about where they were going up in the building. They, went, they got into the building. Went, they went through the double-hung door, and, and at Truly's lead, they went to the back of the building. This the, is in the uh, the uh, first floor. First floor, and it's in the, the rear, the the western, the northwestern uh, corner of the depository. Yes. Is it? Yes. Now there are elevators there, but both of the elevators were up in the upper floors. So Truly led Baker up the stairs, and they were really running. Truly was ahead of Baker. When Baker, when Truly was going from the second to the third floor, he became aware of the fact that Baker was not behind them. And he retraced the steps, and he found that Baker was inside a lunchroom. Mr. Truly is the manager, manager of, the building. of the building, yes. And he was standing where at the time of the assassination? Uh, out in front of the building. I see. And incidentally, he, in common with most of the men who were employed by the building, thought the shots had come to the right of where they were standing, and they were standing almost directly underneath the sixth-floor window. And to the right would have been in the area? Of what of has what? come to be known the Grassy Knoll, yes. uh, a raised place uh, along Elm Street. Now, when Truly retraced his steps to look for Baker, he found Baker inside a lunchroom. This lunchroom uh, has access through two doors, one of which is set at a 45-degree angle and has what amounts to a peephole in it, uh, not much larger than a book. Baker's subsequent testimony was that uh, he saw something through this window. Now, had he seen something through the window, somebody would have had to have been there to attract his attention. 
because the angle is entirely contrary to the testimony. The angle at which he could have seen something would have shown him a blank wall unless uh, Oswald had just walked in. But this is hardly probable unless Oswald walked in and just stood still because the door had an automatic closure on it. And the door was entirely closed when, uh, when uh, first Truly and then Baker went past. Well, now they were mounting the stairs when uh, to not to go into the lunchroom, but to go to a higher to, floor. to the roof. Now, meanwhile, these stairs are the had Oswald been on the sixth floor, the only way he could have gotten to the second floor was down these stairs, which means that he had to have gotten into the lunchroom before he would have been visible to Truly. And this is an open stairway, remember, and w with wide passages around it that were used for storage, desks were there, and so forth. It was a large area. So Oswald had to have been inside the lunchroom, and the door had to have closed before truly reached the second floor. And I say before he reached the second floor because I've emphasized it's an open stairway. Now, as I say, I have at least a half dozen statements by Baker in not one case did he say what he testified to. He placed Oswald, uh, I'm sorry, he placed his encounter with Oswald up to the fourth floor. Uh, he placed it at various points along the second floor in and out of the lunchroom. And in fact, he said Oswald was holding a Coke in his hand. Well, now, did he testify to this before the commission or in his uh, initial interrogation? What I'm talking about is all of the various interrogations which both preceded and even followed, a, re a very strange thing, followed his testimony before the commission. He was interrogated after he appeared before the commission? He was actually interrogated the very day before the report was issued. I can make absolutely no sense out of this. It is the most rudimentary kind of an interrogation, and I reproduce it in whitewash, too. There's an FBI handwritten report. I'm sorry, a handwritten statement taken by an FBI agent in the presence of a witness. He took one from Truly that day and one from Baker, and this is uh, a well-spaced single, spa single page in length. It's perhaps... Um Welcome back. And that was uh, excerpts from an interview with Harold Weisberg, a JFK assassination researcher. Uh, that interview was from December of 1966. And that's going to conclude uh, our program uh, for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, we've been broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit on this Saturday afternoon, uh, November 25th, 2023. If you'd like to have access uh, to this program, all you need to do uh, is go to our website, and uh, that is at the Pan-African Radio Network. Uh, you can log on to the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash panafricanjournal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read uh, the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out our program uh, with the music of the legendary uh, Detroit jazz trumpeter, uh, Donald Byrd, uh, from his early recordings of uh, 1955. This was taken from an album produced by another legend, uh, Tom Wilson. Uh, this album was entitled Bird's Word. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.